You are listening to The Real Faith Stories Podcast. Interviews with people who chose to boldly follow their faith. I'm your host, Brian Robinson. Now, let's meet our guest and hear their story. Well, Paul, welcome to Real Faith Stories. It is truly a blessing to have you on the program today. Looking forward to hearing your story. Man, it's great to be here, Brian. Thank you so much. It's it's really an honor. I am very interested in hearing some of your backstory, and then we're going to dig into an experience you had going from $1.5 million in the bank and then moving over a period of about 10 years to $2.5 million in debt. And your back was completely up against the wall, but then God showed you how to get out of debt and you were debt-free in 13 months after that. So uh, before we go there, Paul, please share a bit about yourself. Absolutely. So I had an engineering degree, which was my first mistake. And then I got uh, an MBA after that, which wasn't a mistake. And I went to Ford Motor Company, where I worked in the Detroit headquarters region for about five years. I loved Ford, but I got bored. And I, I think I was an entrepreneur at heart all along. So a friend of mine and I started a company, a staffing firm, and it, it really took off. And we sold it to a publicly traded company five years later. And I was only 34 years old. And I thought, I'm a full-time investor now. <laughs> and it's not true. I wasn't. I was actually more of a speculator than an investor because investing, I've learned later, is when your principal is generally safe and you've got a chance to make a return and speculating is when your principal is not at all safe and you've got a chance to make a return. So I moved to the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia. We bought 120 acres on top of a mountain, started a nonprofit. We actually started a, an international student ministry and that was moving pretty slowly. So got bored again. And so I started uh, flipping houses, then started flipping waterfront lots at a lake called Smith Mountain Lake in Virginia, then did some ground up homes. I, I learned something important that your audience might need to know. I found out that, you know, after building seven or eight homes that you shouldn't build a house if you don't know how to fix the doorknob on your own house. <laughs> Good advice. Yeah. I thought, I thought you could use that. But at any rate, we we built homes and and we and I always during those years I wondered how do I get involved in commercial real estate? I really didn't know where the on-ramp was. And so fast forwarding past the story we're going to talk about today in 2011, my friend and I built a a multifamily community in North Dakota for the oil boom there and then we did another one next door and then we did a Hyatt hotel that he mainly ran. And I ended up in commercial real estate. I ended up going back into the apartment realm. And now my company manages a number of funds for commercial real estate investment. We do diversified funds that allow people to invest with us. And we place that money across a lot of different commercial real estate assets. So mm -hmm. that's my history from start to finish. Okay. Well, what was it that led to this experience you had having $1.5 million in the bank and then having that go to $2.5 million in debt? Yeah. So it was 1997 when we sold our company 25 years ago. And like I said, I was about 34 years old. And 
I didn't know the difference between investing and speculating, like I said. So when we invested in real estate, I think that was a really good thing. We made money on most of our deals. We were flipping houses and it was pretty predictable. You know, you could buy it for 60,000, put 20 in it, then sell it for 130 or whatever and make a 40,000 or whatever dollar profit. It was very predictable, but I shot for the moon and I started buying lots at Smith Mountain Lake in Virginia. And so land is much more speculative than houses. I mean, there's houses you can rent out if you can't sell it, or you could usually, you know, sell a house. There, there's almost always a buyer for a house, but land is much more speculative. And in good times, people buy land and they bid the price up. But in bad times, often it's very hard to sell land. And so I had probably 10 or so waterfront lots on the books at any one time and, you know, between eight and 10. Mm -hmm. And I could see the cracks in the economy in 2005, six, seven, you know, there was a, a story and I cannot find the magazine, but I think it was fortune that said the real estate bubble is about to burst. And I bought that, but I ignored the advice. I kind of thought, you know, that lie that we tell ourselves, Brian, it's different this time. Yeah. You know? And I thought, well, maybe I'm the exception to this. And, you know, well, yeah, that's in New York City, but that's not going to happen to me. And so I justified, you know, that old song that says everybody, every man believes what they want to believe and they disregard the rest. True. It's so easy to get tunnel vision, especially when you're speculating, you're making money. And I could see that the lot market was slowing down a little bit. We were buying these lots for, let's say, $200,000 going in and grooming them nicely. We might get a dot permit, beautiful photos, and then we would put it back on the market for, you know, but we would basically make a 80 to $120,000 profit per lot. So it was, it was quite intoxicating. Oh yeah. Well, we thought, you know, Hey, here's a five acre track. This should be able to be cut into five lots. And so we paid, I think it was like $800,000 for that lot. And the thought that would be that we could cut it into five lots and about four of the five would sell for like three hundred to 400000 each. So mm -hmm. it was going to be a really nice profit. So we bought that believing that the road that was a private road out in front of the lot would be made public soon. There was a rumor that the Virginia Department of Transportation was going to take it over. It would be public. And when it was public, we could cut it into five lots. Again, I was. It was kind of a heady time. We had the money to do it. We, we we actually went deeply in debt to do that, and as well as the other lots we bought. And that was where the speculation came in, Brian, because I really just speculated in the sense that I believed it would be easy to cut this into five lots, but it it really wasn't at all. And that's where I got in trouble. The debt started to get racked up, didn't it? Yeah. Well, I mean, when we knew there was a big problem, it was mid to late 2007 and the lot market had screeched to a halt. The housing market had as well. Uh, a, a lot of our markets driven by cities like DC and DC felt the recession actually a couple years before the nation did in general. They started to have a slowdown in like in 06. But at any rate, it was the fall of 2007 and we had about two and a half million dollars in debt that included my personal home, a vacation home, and a whole bunch of lots. Well, my partner was in the lots with me and he came to me in, I think, December 2007. He said, I can't go on. I can't go on paying half of the interest for all this debt. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to sign all this property over to you 
as well as the debt and, you know, good luck. And I understood. Actually, we're still good friends today. He, he still works in one of my companies. But at any rate, I understood that. And I said, you know what? I really think God's going to bail us out. God's going to give us an exit path. Are you sure you want to leave? He said, yeah, I'm going to leave. So he did. Well, it was November or December of 2007. I happened to notice it was exactly 10 years after I had a half a million and a half in the bank from selling my company. And now I, you know, that had swung four million the other direction to two and a half million dollars in debt. Yeah. One morning I was meditating and praying. It was a Sunday morning, in fact. And I just got this thought really strongly. What would George Mueller do? And George Mueller is one of my heroes, but I've noticed that the younger generation has almost forgotten George. So if it's okay, I'll tell you a little bit about George Mueller. Absolutely. I was going to ask you to. Yeah. George Mueller uh, was born in the early 1800s and he lived till almost 1900. George was a hellion in Germany, a real troublemaker, but his dad wanted him to study to be a pastor because pastors apparently in the Lutheran church made a lot of money and were respected. So he studied to be a pastor, even though he was, he had no relationship with God at all. Well, he had an encounter with Jesus one night and totally radically changed his life. And of course, his dad got mad at him because, you know, he wasn't supposed to do that. <laughs> but anyway, he gave his life to Jesus radically. I, I, he was still very young. I mean, I think he was like 19 at the time, if I'm not mistaken. And he moved to England to be a missionary. He was a church planter, pastor, missionary, and he had really radical beliefs about stuff. You know, as much as I love the man, I'm not sure if he'd have been that easy to get along with because... One thing he believed is that you and I would believe is that we should not be workaholics, but we should have time for our families, time for God. Well, for some reason in England, where he was, he was in Bristol, you know, blue collar town. A lot of the men had two jobs and they said they didn't have time to read the Bible. They didn't have time for their families, barely had time to come to church. And so he's challenged them and said, don't you think God will provide? And they said, yeah, it's easy for you to say you live off ties. You're not proving anything to us. So he got mad. So he wanted to prove to these men in Bristol. And he said he wanted to leave a record for all time, for the mm -hmm. whole world to know that God could be trusted. God was faithful, that God would come through if you trusted him. At the same time, he realized there was a lot of orphans. There were a lot of orphans on the street in Bristol. And a lot of them had lost two parents to various diseases and or what, for whatever reason. So he decided, he felt like God gave him a, a leading to start taking in orphans with absolutely no means of support. So they set up a house. He and his wife started taking in orphans into that house. And he never asked anybody for money at all. In fact, he made a point to never tell anyone but his wife what his needs were. And he just took them to God. So fast forwarding a couple decades, he eventually cared for a total of 10,000 orphans in their orphanages. There were incredible stories that happened along the way. He has a record that living to this day of every penny he took in, every dollar that went out, how much he spent on everything. And there was a lot of stories. If anybody knows about Mueller, this is probably the story they know. Uh, the kids were all sitting around one morning waiting for breakfast. They were all sitting at the breakfast table with their place settings in front of them. But there was absolutely no food, nothing in the house at all. And I'm, I'm guessing there were hundreds of orphans there. So they prayed and asked God 
for food. And they said, Lord, we're thanking you for the food that you're going to provide. Well, about the time they said amen, there was a knock at the door and a milk truck, a milk wagon had broken down right outside in the street. And the grumbling guy, the driver said, wow, this milk's all going to go bad. My truck broke down here and you can have it all. So he gave him all the milk. And about that time, another knock came to the door and the baker from the from Bristol there came to the door and he said, God woke me up at two in the morning and said, your orphans need food. And so he provided them with all the bread they needed for the meal that morning and that day. And that was a famous story, but there were lots and lots of stories. There's books, book after book filled with these stories. And um, Mueller had to struggle though. He wasn't, it wasn't all just roses. It was, wasn't all easy. He spent years agonizing with God man of faith, man of prayer. They say that in the course of his life, he, for some reason, this number is not real clear, but they say he raised something like a quarter billion dollars in today's U.S. dollars, all by faith and prayer. And he never asked anyone for a penny. Mind-blowing. So you decided, okay, if this works for George Mueller, I'm going to apply my faith in this fashion. And what happened next, Paul? Yeah, so I went to church that morning, and I was all excited. I had just journaled, I'm going to do what George Mueller would do. I'm not sure what that is yet, but I know he would do something really radical. And uh, that morning, the pastor, the only time to my knowledge in 14 years at this church, that morning he preached, and he used George Mueller as his example. Oh, man. And so I knew I was on to something. (laughs) Yeah. So about two weeks later, a couple friends, very concerned friends in my accountability group, one of them was my CPA's husband. They got together with me at a restaurant and they said, we, we've got some concerns here. How are you going to get out of this mess you're in? I mean, you've been very open with us that you're two and a half million dollars in debt. And it looks like we're going into a recession here. Of course, nobody knew we were going into the worst recession since the Great Depression. It's important to remember that we didn't know that at the time. But anyway, I said, oh, yeah, about that debt. Yeah, we're going to give our way out of debt. And they just looked at me like, you know, dead silence. Yeah. You're going to what? I said, we're going to give our way out of debt. I said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to establish a set amount of money that we're going to start giving on January 1st, 2008. This was December of of 07. We're going to start giving this set amount every week and it's going to be painful and it's going to be a lot. And we're going to give that every week to our church, to charities, to other things we're really passionate about. And we're going to trust God to bail us out. If he doesn't, we'll be bankrupt. If he does, well, we'll have a great story to tell. And so I also gathered my family that evening and I told them the same thing. I had four young kids. My wife knew our back was against the wall and she said, okay, well, it doesn't sound like a great idea, but okay, let's do it. So we started giving a set amount of money in January and we just basically at that point hoped and prayed that God would come through. What were the challenges you faced, you and your wife, emotionally when things started to get more difficult? It was funny because it wasn't like we had a choice. I mean, we had a choice to give or not give. And you could easily argue that, you know, with all the money going out every month for interest payments and everything else, that it would have been easy to say, well, you can't tithe off nothing. Mm -hmm. But we were making some money. We had another business going. 
that I still have going today. In fact, it's a website that sells leads to realtors and we were making some money from that. So the challenge was to give or not give. But as far as trusting God, it didn't feel like that big of a challenge for some reason. I think when your back's up against the wall that badly, it is almost like, I don't know how to explain it, but it was like, it didn't seem like we had any other option. Whether we gave or didn't give that money, our back was against the wall. So what did you experience in terms of that walk? Were there some obvious things you could place your finger on? That changed? Yeah. No, not yet. So we went, but I mean, it wasn't long. Four weeks into this, we so we gave that same amount every week. And I don't remember how it came about, but I remember I was in a Subway restaurant and there was a pretty well-known real estate developer there who was quite successful at Smith Mountain Lake. And I started talking to him about my story and you know how much trouble I was in there. And I told him about the five-acre lot that I shared earlier. And I said, you know, it's too bad we can't subdivide that because if we could, well, I think we could get out of trouble here. I think we could sell those five individual lots. And I think we could, you know, get, have a lot of progress in our debt repayment. And he gave me an idea. And for the purpose of time and complication on this podcast, I'm not going to go into the details. But bottom line, he, he said, well, there's that certain law, you know, that maybe you can find a loophole with that law and do it. It was called the family subdivision law, where you can give a piece of a lot to, to a family member hmm. and, and divide it that way. But there was much more to it than that. But I said, well, that law won't work. For me, I'm well aware of that law, and I thought about that many times. And the reason it wouldn't work is because of, and I was given the reason it wouldn't work. And then he made another comment, and it was like this light bulb moment. I just felt like this download from heaven, and I was like, oh my goodness, wait a minute, I know how to do it. And so I left the Subway restaurant, I immediately called my surveyor, who would have to be involved in surveying this into five lots, and I told him why, how it could work. And he, he was a very, very godly, older Christian man getting ready to retire. He had a great reputation. And I think he was really worried about going to the county with this outrageous idea. But he agreed to go with me. And I presented this to the county planning and zoning two days later. And he was standing by me. I think he had kind of his head in his hands, like he was embarrassed mm-hmm. because it was such a crazy idea. So, Brian, when I finished explaining this and showing this lady the plat of how I wanted to subdivide these lots, she looked up at me over her glasses and she just shook her head. She wasn't smiling. And she said, I've been in this job for about 30 years. No one has ever, ever come to us with such an audacious, outrageous way of using our own law to circumvent our law. And then she smiled and she said, but you did. And she said, and I won't stop you. She goes, you you found a loophole in the law that no one has ever found, apparently. And I I won't and I I can't stop you. You can do this. And so I walked out of there rejoicing. But remember, it was 2008 and it was, you know, things were going from bad to worse. Nobody was buying lots, Mm -hmm. but I took that as, you know, the Lord was with us and I started down that path. And so I'll kind of jump forward a little bit. Uh, we had to subdivide the lots on paper. Then we had to do all kinds of other things, septic permits, other things. We, our bank, I went to my bank. They had to completely cooperate to make this work. And my bank said, absolutely not. We won't be part of this. 
course, I wasn't aware that how bad things were in 2008. I wasn't aware of what the bank was facing, you know, as far mm-hmm. as their rates and all that. And, you know, I, now I can kind of look back and go, yeah, I can see why they said no. But at the time, it was pretty upsetting. I'm like, okay, God's got me on a path here and this bank's saying no. Well, anyway, I found another bank that not only was willing to do it, they were willing to do it in a way that saved me a ton of money. But we went into September with all these lots subdivided. Now, for those of you who remember September and October of 2008, that was when everything hit the fan really, really badly. Everybody knew that we were in a serious crisis and it could have been, you know, the next great depression. Things were really bad. And I had actually four buyers for four of these five lots lined up and they had to close consecutively. If any one of the first three of the four, at least, failed, it would mess up the whole thing. Well, amazingly, it's amazing. I got lot buyers. That is amazing. And it's amazing that the bank agreed with it. It's amazing, of course, that the county agreed with it first. But every one of these deals went like clockwork right through September, right through October. Every uh, 10 days or so, we closed on one of the four lots. And all four four of those five were closed. And then the fifth was closed in the spring. Well, during that same year, I was actually able to sell off almost all of my other waterfront lots, even in the terrible recession we were falling into. And Brian, 13 months later, after we started this uh, process, we were completely debt free. In fact, we even paid off our house. Incredible, Paul. In the midst of basically one of the worst financial situations in the history of America besides the Great Depression. Yep, absolutely. What's been your biggest takeaway from this whole experience? You know, one obvious takeaway is, you know, God can be trusted. He's faithful. I believe in Malachi, you know, chapter three, and I think we all do, but I was able to put it into action. And I now, you know, I didn't know if I'd ever tell that story publicly. It just seemed kind of private at first for our family, but I found out that I'd have a chance to share that at our church. And I did. And then I've shared it actually on a number of podcasts and also in my uh, U-version Bible study Mm. called Doing Business Supernatural. And uh, so that's been one thing. I think it's encouraged a lot of people's faith. Another thing, another takeaway was God's not a vending machine. Now, this sounds a little contrary to what I just said. You know, Malachi 3, you know, you give and he's going to give back more than you even expect. Well, I can tell you that we continued to give at that exact pace all through, of course, 2008, but also 2009, 10, 11, all the way to 2016 or 17. And I got to tell you, it didn't work the same way. Hmm. And that's what that's where God reminded me. He's not a vending machine. He's not just like you put a dollar in and you get a soft drink or a candy bar out. God wants a relationship with us. He wants to draw near to us. He wanted, you know, he wanted George Mueller to know him better and to love him more. And he wanted the people that heard about Mueller's story to know him and love him. And the same with me. And so an interesting thing that happened is we gave at that same pace. We had some really, really good years from 2011 to 14, but I was still giving at that same pace. I think we actually doubled it for a while, mm-hmm. like around 2014 to 16, and everything just went south financially. And my bank account was dropping on the regular, but we continued to give. And there, believe it or not, we finally had to come to a place where we had to stop. We didn't stop giving. 
to be really clear. Mm-hmm. We just stopped giving it that pace, that weekly pace that was actually quite painful. And it, it taught me, you know, that God's not a vending machine. He's not just going to automatically do what you want. And so actually, I'll, I'll tell you the truth. And, you know, a lot of us in our faith walk, we have these moments. I was confused. I didn't know what was what to think anymore. I knew that God had obviously acted in 2008, mm-hmm. obviously. But I wasn't sure where to go from there. Well, what's happened since, and I don't think I've ever told this story to anybody except my wife and a few people around me. There was a couple years of confusion in there around 2017 to 19. But I made a very hard decision in the fall of 2018 that resulted in incredible prosperity since then. And so, in fact, without going into too much detail, I can tell you that the way we actually have prospered since then has even clearly had God's stamp on it. In fact, if we would have prospered during all those years when I said we weren't exactly, like 2015 to 18, 19, Mm -hmm. it would have actually backfired. I wouldn't have come to the conclusion that I have now about how to spend the rest of my life. Because of those lean years, we were able to make some hard pivots. And now we've just, I mean, I'm very confident that God is right in the center of what we're doing now. And I don't think that would have happened if we hadn't had the difficulties. What was it that you pivoted to and now has become your life's mission? Well, one of the things I learned along the way was I really thought that if I didn't become a missionary, if I didn't become a full-time pastor, if I didn't go, you know, serve on a foreign mission field, that I was really a subpar Christian. You know, I recognized that, you know what, I don't have to do that. Business people have just as much and often much more opportunity to impact the world than people in ministry. And I realized that the day I became a Christian, I was in full-time ministry. The problem was between my ears. Thankfully, I got that cleared out between my ears. I realized that. That's a mindset shift. But I also, because of some of the leanness we were experiencing, I had to you know, pivot and figure out different ways to raise money, to raise capital for our company. And so I started writing books. Uh, I've written, I had written one book in 2008, but two more since then. I've been on almost 300 podcasts as a guest. I've hosted my own podcast for four years. I started doing webinars, blogging, writing a lot. I, I've realized, realized quite a bit of influence that I wouldn't have had otherwise. Mm-hmm. And since then, we've launched this commercial real estate fund. And again, that was bred out of failure between 2015 and 18, that we launched our first fund in 2019 as a response to the lean years we were having. And that's where I'm so excited now. And now we've, on top of the fund and on top of the people I'm able to impact through all these different venues, we've also launched a new social mission that I'd love to talk about before we wrap up. Yeah. Please go ahead and tell us about that social mission. Yeah. If you took the record profits, and I don't mean the average, the record profits of Apple, General Motors, Nike, and Starbucks, Brian, if you added those record profits together and doubled that number, that's the estimated profits generated by human trafficking every year. Unreal. According to the U.S. State Department. It's a horrible thing. And um, in the middle of George Mueller's life, we had a civil war. I I would like to believe that if I was alive at that time, 
I would have been fighting for abolition of slavery. And I'd like to believe if I was alive in the night or an adult in the 1960s, I would have been fighting for righteous civil rights. Well, this is a civil right and this is slavery and it's happening on a scale never seen before in human history. In fact, since we started this podcast, about 400 people have been captured or sold into slavery. So my company, Wellings Capital, we're on a mission to try to tell the world what's really happening and to also raise money to fight human trafficking and rescue and restore its victims. Mm, Incredible. What is the biggest piece of advice, Paul, that you tend to give people when you're in open conversations with them or when someone reaches out to you for help? I'm usually talking to people about investing. In fact, in a few minutes, I'll be doing a mentoring call. I'll be talking to people about investing. And the biggest piece of advice I'm giving in that realm is it relates back to right at the beginning of this show where I talked about the difference between speculating and investing. I think it's really fun and exciting to chase the big gains from you know stuff like Bitcoin or, or whatever, whatever shiny object you might be chasing. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with doing some of that. I am saying it's really important to realize that most of wealth will be protected and grown by investing carefully, not by speculating. And now in terms of spiritual advice, what is it that you tend to dispense to people? If you're a Christian, you've already been called into full-time ministry. It's a false dichotomy. It's a false dichotomy and a lie to believe that you are a second-class Christian just because you're in business. Uh, You're not inferior to anybody in the mission field. There's no distinction. Everything's spiritual. You were already drafted. And, you know, a lot of, especially in the 80s when I became a believer, Brian, uh, a lot of CEOs and business people, when they got saved, entrepreneurs, when they got saved, they would be relegated to, you know, maybe being ushers and counting the offering at church. And they'd think, okay, well, I guess my whole role is to make as much money as I can. This is where I contribute. But God wants to show his power through all of us. God wants to show his power in every realm, you know, whether it's in banking or finance or sports or education or government or, you know, a film and music. God wants to show his greatness in all those different realms. Basically, it's on earth as it is in heaven. Mm. And what I learned is that we have four times the potential, four times the capacity of Bill Gates and Warren Buffett. Now, how is that? Well, first of all, we were made in God's image. And so were they. Bill and Warren were made in God's image. They've really maximized that piece, I got to tell you. And they've done really well for themselves. But number two, we have Christ in you, the hope of glory, Christ in us. They don't have that. Number three, we have the mind of Christ. They don't have that. Number four, we have the Holy Spirit in us, God inside of us. They don't have that. So we should start expecting that God's going to do great things, big, big things through us. We have four times the capacity of Bill Gates and Warren Buffett and probably Elon Musk. And we've got to start believing in our own salvation. We've got to believe in the implications of that salvation. If Bill Gates and these other guys can do all that they've done without the tools we have, we should be able to do even more. We should be expecting God, to speak through us, to speak through dreams and visions and ideas. We should have the best inventions, 
the best music, the best films, the best business ideas and innovations. The world, you know, Roman says the world is crying out for us to come into our destiny. And right now the world's in chaos. America's in chaos in so many different ways. And I've got to believe that God's got a better answer for every problem facing America and the world than we have in our own flesh and that the government and the business leaders have and the technology people have. He has the best ideas for every invention, every medical breakthrough, everything's locked up in his heart. And so if we can tap into that, we should be able to be the leaders in all these realms. To tap into that, we first got to believe that this is our calling. We first got to believe that he wants to shine light into darkness and bring heaven to earth, as Jesus said in his famous prayer. How can people find out more about you, Paul? And I'm going to ask you to please pray specifically about what you just stated. Yeah, they can learn more about me at my website. It's Wellings Capital. That's W-E-L-L-I-N-G-S Capital, wellingscapital.com. And we've got some resources on there to help people learn about how to invest in commercial real estate, specifically in self-storage, mobile home parks, and a whole lot more. I'm also on Version. If you have the Version Bible app, I have a, a plan called Doing Business Supernaturally. And in that uh, six-day plan, we have lots of fun stories about people who trusted God and saw massive, amazing things happen. In terms of doing massive things and believing for that, I'd love for you to pray for our listeners. Yeah, absolutely. Father, we thank you that you have shined light into darkness 2,000 years ago through Jesus. Today, you're shining light into darkness through everybody listening here. We are the hands and feet of Jesus. And we thank you that you trusted us, that you've trusted us enough to impact the world. Lord, I pray that nobody listening will crucify the resurrected man, that we would live in power, that we would live in joy, that we would live um, trusting you for answers to the problems the world has, like Joseph and like Daniel and like Esther did in the Bible and like so many modern heroes like George Mueller and so many others in my Bible plan did who trusted you and have seen amazing results. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to shake off the shackles of religion, and to believe that you have a plan for us to bring light into darkness and to impact the world for good. And I pray that you would open up doors for me, for Brian, and for everybody listening to impact the world and to make Jesus known in every corner of every boardroom, in every village in the world. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity. And we pray that you would just fill us to the fullness with your spirit in the process. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Paul, thank you so much. Great having you on the program. Yeah, it's great to be here, Brian. Thank you. It was an honor. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. Please make sure you subscribe to the show and share this with someone you believe would be encouraged and motivated by these stories. Until next time, I'm Brian Robinson reminding you that the greatest decision you could ever make is to ask Jesus Christ to become the Lord of your life. If you haven't done that, read Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 11. Thanks again for listening.